We're in a series about breaking free, because when we know Jesus, we know liberation, we know freedom. We're not meant to be chained up. Um, we're meant to be set free, to live free lives. And so we've been doing a series on breaking free out of what chains us up. Well, Stephen Covey tells a story. You might have heard it in the habits, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. It's about a radio conversation between the British and the Irish off the coast of Kerry not so many years ago. And as you might imagine, things are pretty tense between the British and the Irish, lots of history and tension, and it plays out in this exchange, which sounded like this. Please divert your course 15 degrees to the south to avoid a collision. Recommend you divert your course 15 degrees to the north to avoid a collision. Negative. You will have to divert your course 15 degrees to the south to avoid a collision. This is the captain of a British Navy ship. I say again, divert your course. Negative. I say again, you will have to divert your course. This is the aircraft carrier HMS Britannia, the second largest ship in the British Atlantic Fleet. We are accompanied by three destroyers, three cruisers, and numerous support vessels. I demand you change your course 15 degrees north. I say again, that is 15 degrees north, or countermeasures will be undertaken to ensure the safety of this ship. Um, we are a lighthouse. Your call. C.S. Lewis, in the first chapter of the book Mere Christianity, or in the eighth chapter, talks about the great sin. Can you guess what it is? Pride. Pride is the sin that we can see so readily in other people and hate. Think of the most prideful person you know. You got it? It's like that, right? Don't say their names. It's ugly. We're, not gonna, we're just going to keep it right here. But Lewis also points out we can see it, we loathe it, we despise it in other people, and yet we're never guilty of pride, right? Never. I never think, man, pride is a real problem for me, right? It's a real problem for you and you and you, and yet we don't think about how pride affects us until we're in a showdown with a lighthouse, right, that for all the world to see. So I want to talk to you today about two kings, now, being a king, you can imagine, is a pretty prideful thing. These kings were God's kings. God appointed them. God asked them to lead and to lead in his name. And I want you to see, not that you need to be perfect as a believer. These leaders, given the power that they had, did some great things, both of them. They were both great military leaders. They were both great strategists. They built some wonderful things for God. They won some amazing victories. And then they both had failures. Both of these leaders had struggled in their family. They committed sins. Um, they didn't do exactly what God wanted all the time. One of them went down in history as a failure, as a despot, as de despised. Just an utter ruin of a life. The other one wrote the book of Psalms, many of the Psalms, and is known as a man after God's own heart. And the difference wasn't that one lived an upright life and the other was a total sinner. They both were sinners. It wasn't that one was great in the military and the other wasn't. It was when they failed, what they did with it. And if pride was standing in the way of them and God, choking off their relationship with God. So this is the big difference. The first king is Saul. And Saul was a, 
anointed by God. Saul began well, filled with the Holy Spirit, and then he messed up. And what he did was God asked him to totally destroy um, a certain nation, wipe them out, not keep anything. Usually you got to keep the plunder, right? Because you win a battle, you get paid for it. You get to keep the plunder. So he goes and wins this great victory, and I, I'm sure his guys were like, what, we don't get to keep any of this stuff? And Saul's like, oh, sure you can, and I'm going to keep all that good stuff too. And so the Bible says Saul went after this amazing victory, which was amazing, and built a monument to himself. Guys, you know you're on slippery ground when you start putting statues up of your awesomeness, right? Pride might be a problem here. And so instead of just abandoning Saul, God does what God always does. When we're in trouble, send somebody to help us see the light. And so he sends Samuel to him, and Samuel says, well, actually, Saul greets Samuel, and when you see the prophet of the Lord coming in this day before the Holy Spirit came, and here comes the prophet of God, and you have a giant monument of yourself, you know, that he's come past, and all of this swag that you kept, you could come clean. Instead, Saul's like, greetings, I have done God's will. Really, Samuel says, then why do I hear goats and sheep if you've done God's will? Because remember, God said, get rid of all that stuff. And Saul says to him, oh, well, I have a better idea. I'm going to make it an offering to God. That's a better idea. I have improved on God's plan. Right? How often are we tempted to say, well, I didn't do exactly what God said. I made an improvement on that plan. And so the whole time Samuel is talking to Saul and saying, you are cutting yourself off from God. God is not cutting himself off from, Sa from Saul. Saul is cutting himself off from God by this pride that is swelling in his life. And so finally, this is what, after Saul refuses to change his mind, this is what Samuel says. What is more pleasing to the Lord, your burnt offerings and sacrifices, his plan, or your obedience to God's voice? Listen, obedience is better than sacrifice. Submission is better than offering the fat of rams. Rebellion is as sinful as witchcraft and arrogance as bad as worshiping idols. So he names that in Saul's life. You are arrogant. He says, because you have rejected the command of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. This is what pride did to Saul. It took him out. This is what pride did to Adam and Eve, right? The first sin of humanity is not that that fruit looks really good. It's that the snake comes over and adds to the good-looking fruit, if you eat that, you will be like God. And who doesn't want to be like God? And so they ate it. And so Saul said, I have a better plan. And so this is the problem with pride is that it chokes you off from God's forgiveness. It chokes you off from ever seeing that you were wrong. And so you can't be transformed if you're never wrong. Now, this is the difference with David. David was a great man. I love David. I love his faithfulness. I love his hope. I love his endurance. He endured for years. But he's not perfect. That's all what I also love is because we say as a church we are imperfect people. But what are we imperfect people? Transformed by the perfect love of God. And that's what David was, is he was imperfect and he could admit it. He was humble. So when Nathan the prophet, you know the story about him and Bathsheba, he sees this hot lady on a rooftop bathing, and he's like, I gotta have that. Who cares if she's married, right? He's the king. Power's going to his head. So he sleeps with her, gets her pregnant. 
when her husband won't come home and sleep with her and cover up this problem, he has him killed. And this is one of his closest inner circle of military people, has him killed. This is a huge sin. And so, and David just marries Bathsheba and done, you know, snap a Z, we're done with that, win. And Nathan the prophet, again, God sends a prophet to his king and says, you have sinned. You have, this is all the things that you have done wrong. And whereas Saul gave excuses and put up monuments and tried to say, I have a better plan, this is what David says in 2 Samuel 12, 13. As soon as he hears the word of God, then David confessed to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Circle that passage in your Bible. That's the difference. That is the difference between these two kings is when they are confronted with their sin, not that they, either one of them never sinned, not that they were perfect and glorious, that when God said, you have been wrong, Saul said, no, I haven't. And David said, I've sinned. He got on his knees and said before God, God, you were right and I am wrong. And that's how we need to be. That's how pride will kill you is it will just make you think you don't need to change. It will just tell you you're fine the way you are. You're wonderful. Now, here's the truth. You're wonderful. God loves you. God loves you right now, and you don't need to change for God to love you. But once you accept Jesus into your life, he said he came for the sick. But he's not like, you're really sick. Good luck with that. Like, you're really sick, and I'm a doctor. Here's how you'll change. Here's how I can transform you. Here's how we're going to make you well. But when pride is around us, we can't admit that we're sick. We can't ever change. Now, one other thing about pride is when I say pride, I looked in the New Testament, and in the New Testament, all the references to pride, did you know that half of them are talking about this prison, and the other half are talking about a good kind of pride? So I want us to be real careful not to feel like anytime I'm proud of a character or a great accomplishment or our high school seniors that we're being sinful. We're not. There's a good kind of pride. And that kind of pride says, Justin, Eric, we're proud of you. We're glad that we're sending you into the world, and we're going to help you succeed. It draws us together as a community. We had a worship committee meeting the other day, and one of our members said, I have been without a cigarette for four months. She said, and God has been helping me to do that. And we all just, we gave her hugs and we said, that's amazing. Tell us your story. We're proud of her. I'm proud of her for that. When I see you being courageous, I'm proud of you. When I see you serving, I'm proud of you. I tell you all the time, I'm proud to be the pastor of this church. Why? Because you're doing such good things. That's good pride. It draws us together. It helps us be stronger. The bad part is the choking kind. Chokes you off. Tells you you're fine. You can never say you're sorry. You're always looking for affirmation. You're always trying to be enough when you never will be, when only God can be enough. And so that brings us to how God deals with pride. How did God act when God had skin on like us? He still, he had more authority the king of creation, than David or Saul ever did. More power. And he looked around. He was eating his last meal with his disciples. 
And some of y'all might have heard Hananiah talk about this. They were eating at a table shaped like this. In the center, the servants could go and put food. And then they were all out at the table like this. On this side of the table, that's the good side. That's like the, you know, best seats over here. This is like the middle, right? This is the middle seats. If you get the middle seats, you're like, yeah, it's not the front row at a concert, but it's okay, right? And over here is the balcony, the nosebleed, right? These are the bad seats. Nobody wants these seats. We have 12 men who were invited to Jesus' last meal, who were at the table with him, right? That's great, no matter where you're sitting, if you're at that meal, if he invited you. And yet, as he looked around, what did he see? Saw people fighting about who could be here and people grumbling when they were here. Not being glad to be at the table, but resenting that guy over there because he didn't deserve to be over there. And John was one of those people who struggled with arrogance and pride, and it often blocked him from what God was doing in his life, and he wrote this gospel, this account of who Jesus is. This is what he says of this last night. He says, Jesus knew the Father had given him authority over everything and that he had come from God and would return to God. So John sets it up. Jesus most powerful person ever. God with flesh on, authority over everything. And then he uses this word. I told you connecting words are important. But is an important word because then you're going to see something different. So is an important word. So we hear he has authority over everything. So he got up from the table, took off his robe, wrapped a towel around his waist, and poured water in a basin. Then he began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel he had around them. So he sees these men choking in pride, not understanding that he's about to die. He has the best seat. He's the host. And he needs to show them what it means to be his follower, to give them an example that they can remember and emulate. And so what he does is he leaves the best seat at the table, and he takes a place that's not even at the table. That's the place of the servant who washes dirty, dirt cake feet. And he does this for each of those human men who have been arguing about who is the greatest. Our Lord. Washing feet. And when he's done, he says, do you understand what I was doing? You call me teacher, rabbi, and Lord, and you are right, because that's what I am. And since I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash each other's feet. I have given you an example to follow. Do as I have done to you. And so the way that we are going to break out of pride, the way that these guys did, was the love of Christ and the call to be a servant. To not think of ourselves so greatly that we cannot serve another person. In fact, to seek out ways, if we have power, if you have power and authority and leadership. Jesus had all the authority on earth, and he looked for a way to serve. And so we are to take the power and the authority that we have and find a way to serve. And that is the antidote to pride. That was what is going to break us out of that prison. And these men, their lives were changed. We have a book many books written about Jesus by men whose lives were changed, about how Jesus changed other lives. And what I'd like to do now is um, to let Jim Ziska come up here, 
and to share with you how his life has been changed by an encounter with Christ. Um, so, Jim, will you come? Laura asked me a while back to share with you my journey to come to know Jesus Christ. It's been a very long journey as it's taken over 70 years. It's really a tale of two gyms, one coated with pride and tinged with arrogance, which very successfully covered up the other gym, an insecure man well insulated against emotional discomfort. My early years were formed out of a lower middle class family, two working parents mixed with fight mixed with alcoholism, fighting, screaming, and eventually divorce. I grew up with self-doubts and a rather low self-esteem. I slowly developed a barrier which protected me against any further pain. But it also left me incapable of expressing or receiving real feelings. Contemplating college, I envisioned a way out. I would become a physician. I would be better than all my other relatives. I would be the best. I achieved high grades and was accepted to four medical schools. Everyone in the extended family was noticing me now as I packed my bags and headed to the University of Iowa. As a medical student, I began developing a pride in my accomplishments. I was far removed from the family and shared very little with them. My father died during my first year. It was an unemotional event. The insulation was working. The grind was tough and the volume of work was huge, and in those days the pressure was constant. I graduated with honors and entered into my field of interest, pediatrics, and especially the care of the newborn. As a resident physician, I now had moved up the chain, giving orders and expecting them to be carried out diligently. After a couple years in Vietnam and the Navy Medical Corps, I finished my training and began practice into a community that needed new innovation. I was their man. I excelled in pediatric medicine and premature intensive care, bringing many new innovations into the area. The nurses and hospital staffs jumped at my every order. New intensive care units were built at my request. And nursing staffs were altered on my behalf. Never had I imagined in my childhood that I would be this important. Doctors in training were eager to join me, and we grew quite quickly, becoming the premier medical clinic in the area. Naturally, I was the guy in charge. However, my success was never enough. Craving more and more, I drove myself harder to see more patients and seek as much publicity as possible. The focus had to be on me. I could tackle disease with a passion, but I could never feel the emotional gratitude of a relieved parent. Emotion was beneath me. My first marriage did not survive my march to fame, and unfortunately I left two children in its wake. But then I couldn't think about that, could I? I had places to go and things to do. During all of this life, I was a Catholic. Pretty much it's written that if you sinned, you were going to hell or that transition period called purgatory, wherever that is. You were not good enough to get to heaven unless you did good deeds. Well, I did good deeds. Look at all the lives I saved. I coached basketball at the YMCA for years and even at the Catholic middle school. I never turned away a patient for the lack of funds. I donated money for an organ for the church and even had my name put on it so all would know how generous I was. I did plenty of good deeds. But I knew nothing of Jesus, only church rules which must be obeyed for salvation. But I was just doing fine by myself. I had too many other things to focus on than my relationship with God. I eventually got bored with going to church and stopped going. Twenty years existed before I came here to Bee Creek Methodist Church. I did not go. 
I did not read the Bible, I did not pray, and I really did not care. Maybe I was too important to mix with the common people. Maybe I just didn't want to get up on Sunday when I had the day off. I did remarry to my present wife of now 30 years, but other than a better communication, both being in the medical field, my pride and need for control changed very little in those early years. We too could have ended in divorce, but in spite of me, her faith in the Lord was strong, and fortunately for me, we stayed together. After 25 years of practice, I moved into an HMO administration of a statewide hospital complex and became the CEO of a large statewide clinic. I had an executive office, hobnobbed with important people, and traveled all over the state. I was basking in glory until I thought I could take on the upper corporate management. In a nutshell, I lost, and a mutual termination was agreed upon. Because of non-disclosure clauses, I decided to move a long way away to Texas. Coming here 14 years ago, I quickly adapted to a party crowd. Church, let alone Christ, was furthest from anyone's mind. I partied hard, boated, traveled, golf, and I became a very good investor of stocks, and so our financial success continued. However, my powerful doctor entity was gone. No one was fawning over me. I was not in charge of anything. It nagged at me. Even a bout of prostate cancer 11 years ago did not wake me up. I volunteered for committees within our community, all of them. I really didn't think I needed God. After all, I went it alone since I was a young boy. I was too proud to admit defeat. Gradually, the party crowd began to fade. Our daughter had her first baby, and Joyce began babysitting, leaving me alone more. I stopped going to the pubs with the guys in the afternoon. It was all becoming inadequate and uninteresting. Everything was slowly fading into emptiness. Our son decided to become a combat soldier during the Iraq fighting. I was, a lo- I was at a loss to my feelings. I could not express to him that I loved him. To make matters worse, my orchestrated exterior was rapidly peeling away. I was back to my childhood of being a nothing, a nobody. I compensated by working harder at my computer, doing more research, and making greater trades. But then it started. For a full year, I would sit in my office. Something was gnawing at me. I was a condemned man. The voice did not condemn me. I was doing a pretty good job of that myself. I needed to go back to church. Not that I needed Christ, mind you. I needed to go back to church. I needed to pretend I was good again. The thought persisted, but I could not bring myself to it. My aversion to the turmoil in the Catholic faith meant that I would have to try another church. That was going to be a reach for me, as changing religions is not tolerated in Catholic doctrine. I put it off. My insecurity was re-emerging. My feeling of guilt persisted. It was growing in intensity, and I didn't know how to handle it. But my pride would not let me openly admit it. One weekend afternoon, we had a homecoming for our son, who had just completed his second decorated tour in Iraq. Maybe it was because of him I was offering a few feeble prayers to God for his safety. By chance, Marty Miller, whom you all know, my neighbor, but not well known to us at the time, was sitting alone with me on the porch, and I asked him about the Lutheran church down the hill. After all, they were a bit like Catholics. Maybe that would suffice. After a short while, he knew I was reaching for something. He told me about this Alpha that he was hosting, and would I come? Joyce and I agreed as we needed to meet new people. It was Monday nights and we had nothing better to do. But I could already tell Marty was sent to me for a reason. 
Well, over we went to the Millers, and I about decided it would be one and done. The group held hands to pray before the meal. That was a little too close. The meal was good, the presentation was interesting, but then a whole lot of personal feelings about the message started coming forth. This whole group started sharing things about themselves. I was too proud to be exposed and remain silent. Somehow I got the courage to return. We finished the course, and at the last sermon, Pastor Laura and Pastor Jeannie were there. Another eye-opener for me. People started laying hands and praying for each other with all the intensity that those prayers would be answered. They were talking to God. I put off going to church with Marty until the sessions were done. He had asked earlier, and I refused. But he was leaving for Colorado soon, and if I wanted him to hold my hand, I needed to go before he left. I was nervous. I didn't feel like I belonged in a house of God. I felt very much out of place. But all of you were very nice, and we elected to come back time after time. I felt good that I was going, but I had yet to feel this Jesus that you talk about. Well, maybe I needed to make a commitment. Yep, that was the answer. We decided to join and made a serious financial commitment. That should get me a few points, I thought. But other than the welcome feeling and a thank you from the chairman of the finance committee, I didn't feel anything else. The inside was still empty, craving something. My thoughts, habits, feelings, and unresolved conflicts and anger with those that disagreed with me had not changed. I would rage internally for days when people disagreed with me. It was so important that I win. Gradually, I figured out that sitting in a church and dropping coin in the plate no more makes you a Christian than sitting in a garage makes you a car. And I sure did not feel any inner strength. Where was this new power that Laura preaches about? Someone in their infinite wisdom or lack thereof decided to make me a trustee. I thought it was a bit early in my membership, but my neighbors insisted. I was impressed right away about how dedicated the trustees were in their duties and how hard Jim Schaefer worked as head of the committee. I agreed to take on the landscaping issues for him. Now I was doing more good deeds, certainly worth a few more points. I met with Pastor Laura about this time as we discovered some childhood divorce issues in common. I thought she looked way too young at Alpha to be the pastor of anything, let alone someone a person as old as I would confide in. But I was very wrong. I found her to be a very understanding, helpful, and compassionate person. This church is very lucky to have her. I told her far more of my story than I expected to do. It was impossible to cover up some of the deep old scars. At the end, she told me if I came to Christ, I would be a new man. I left feeling somewhat better, but the old sins were still with me. Where was this new man? Maybe at 71 it was way too late, or was this all there was? I was still struggling and proving, but struggling. I granted that God had brought me to this place for a reason, and it wasn't just to do landscaping. But I wished he would get on with it. Like all other things in life, I needed a solution today. I started to read some books, searching, trying to put this all together. Maybe I could figure it out for myself. I read that if God's promise is total, if we come and ask for it. Well, I had been asking and nothing was coming. Maybe I expected too much. A while back, my Christian son from my first marriage, sitting there in the first row, gave me some books to read. His conversion bothered me for a long time. Maybe I was jealous. Of course, at the time, I put the books in the closet and rather forgot about them. 
One day I pulled him out and began reading The Utter Relief of Holiness by Eldridge. Of that whole book, I was drawn to one thought. Condemnation is not from God, and that God's kindness will lead you to repent. There was the magic word right before my eyes, repent. In my usual prideful way, I was asking God for this magical power by doing acts and deeds, giving money, attending church, confessing but not repenting. With great clarity, I admitted to God, almost one by one, the harm that people had suffered from my actions or inactions, from my need to control, from jealousy, from my internal rage, from my false pride. It was the first time I had really taken blame for so many things, my first marriage, my self-centeredness, my feeling that it was all about me, the air of going it alone, and many other hurtful things I did to many people. But most of all, to myself. The pride and work kept me away from important times with my past and present family. The biggest loss to me was not being able to be consumed over the years by my current wife's love for me. That barrier that prevented hurt also prevented the feeling of love and acceptance. I was exhausted and truly can't remember what happened the rest of the day. The following morning I awoke and I can't begin to tell you the relief. The shackles were off. It was real. It was an internal feeling of new life, and what was most remarkable was the strength and confidence that was imparted, whereby I no longer care if all you think I am is the gardener. That's enough. I no longer need to be the center of anything, and I no longer have any desire for any type of false pride. It finally dawned on me that without God, you can never be good enough to get to heaven, that the power to do good and avoid evil is implanted in you when you admit sin, repent, and make a true request to Jesus for help. This was not a phony feeling, but an instant real change. He gives you the power to change your life. He also made me aware that only I could make myself feel bad or hurt. No one has that power over me. He also gave me a new pride, pride in the good things that I have done in life, But that pride now remains inside of me. I no longer have to wear it as a suit of armor. During the course of Alpha and some small group exchanges, along with meeting several of you here at church, I am aware that some of you have already made this journey. Some of you have always trusted the Lord. I was jealous of you, that you could feel the power of Christ on a daily basis. Some have not yet made this journey, but pretend that they have. Eventually, if they are fortunate, The emptiness will surface. God has the uncanny ability to wait patiently and not show himself until one is in the depths of despair, when all material things have no real meaning. It is then when you are unbridled of your wealth and your stature and your presumed importance that he emerges, comes to you, and gives you the power to complete your journey. Thank you. like us to close with prayer, and I'd like you to put your hands out like this. We're talking about breaking free, and just lift your hands to God like this. You can just put them on your lap as a sign that you come before God humbly, that you need the Lord. Let's pray. God, I thank you for the way that your power works within us, that your love changes our lives, that your forgiveness sets us free. And Lord, we know that it's nothing that we do or give or say to earn that. 
that you just give it to us as a gift. So help us, Lord, who, are who so readily feel so condemned within our own minds to experience your kindness and your freedom and the power of that new life. Please, Lord, free us from pride. Don't let it strangle us. Help us to see and be able to admit our mistakes to you and to others. Most of all, help us to realize that we need you. And may we be new people because of what you're doing in our lives. Amen. As our response today, let's stand and sing about the power of God. And if you would like to become a part of this church or you just need to talk to me, I'll be at the front to talk to you. Let's sing.
going to ask Jim to stay here so you can talk to him afterwards if you'd like to. And if you want to stay and have lunch with me and find out about the church, even if you haven't signed up, you are welcome. There is a place for you at that table. Now here are the best news I've ever heard. If anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. Amen.